the point is, is that, you know, we live and we die in this planet. And, you know, part of, um, I think in our realm of health and wellness advocates and, and sort of orthorexic advocacy is like this fear of mortality. Like we're so afraid we don't eat the right thing or we don't get the exact right amount of vitamin C. Part of it is also accepting that, you know what, we're all in this together. We all, we're all going to die. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutritionist, and I'm the host on this podcast. And I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself. And on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast, where we believe your body was created to heal itself. And we're, just, we're, we're here to just help you, give you strategies and tools to unlock your healing potential. And I've got a really great interview with a friend of mine that I've known for quite a while now, and he is putting out some of the most prolific information when it comes to the body's incredible ability to heal. And he's got a great new book that I highly recommend for all of you guys to go out and get. It's called Regenerate, Unlocking Your Body's Radical Resilience Through the New Biology. And so, of course, I'm talking about Sayer G. If you've been following me for any time, you've heard of Sayer G. I promoted a lot of his stuff. He's out there all over the place, uh, creating incredible content, doing just amazing research, and really supporting this natural health world uh, in an amazing way. He's a founder of Green Med Info, the world's largest open access natural health database. He's also a reviewer at the International Journal of Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine, the co-founder and CEO of System Biomed, a board member of the National Health Federation, and a steering committee member of the Global Non-GMO Foundation. Sayer is doing just awesome work and uh, really excited about his book. Again, it's called Regenerate, Unlocking Your Body's Radical Resilience Through the New Biology. And of course, we'll have links underneath the video and in the show notes for the podcast so you can check it out. Sayer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love your work and just, you know, really appreciate the enthusiasm and like commitment you have to helping people with these tools in this time because things are pretty stressful out there. And this is the kind of information that we really need the most right now. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we met about 10 years ago at a conference. Seems like it was about 10 years ago. It's quite a while, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And it's amazing to see just in that time span how many people have come to your website, Green Med Info, my website, just how many people we've been able to, to impact. And uh, I know we talked about some ideas when we were at that conference about how, what we wanted to do and what, really uh, what we wanted to get across. But uh, you know what I would love to know is just your whole background story to start, how you got into natural health, what gave you this drive, this passion to, uh, to create the kind of content that you do and to impact people's lives all around the world the way that you are? Well... You know, I think it really just starts out with the fact that I was a really sick infant and, uh, you know, throughout my childhood, same thing, you know, when you come into the world and, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a so-called victim of allopathic medicine to be traumatized because, I mean, if you're lucky enough to have a home birth these days, that is like a miracle. And even that doesn't ensure that you're having some blissful entry into the world. Yeah. So, you know, being human is a challenging thing and we're all just so saddled with traumas many of them unconscious. So for me, my uh, origin story is really about being brought into a medical system that was trying, I think, to help me, but probably induced quite a lot of additional trauma. So my whole life path from there uh, after was really trying to figure out what was wrong with me, how to fix myself, if you will. And uh, you know, by the time I was 17, I realized that cow's milk was the origin of my bronchial asthma episodes, which were, you know, life-threatening. I probably had 50 um, episodes that brought me to an emergency room where they had to you know, give me epinephrine and experimental drugs. So, you know, that hell of an experience really brought me to natural medicine as a life or death, death necessity. So for me, when I started to learn too, um, David, about how many people are 
not told the truth about natural medicine and how simple it is really to heal. And I know you do a ton of work on this. Let's just remove the cause. Like if we have a, a, a splinter in our toe, functional medicine, right? Let's remove the splinter. But instead they lay on the Band-Aid and then they you know, go ahead and put a medication on that it causes new symptoms as this medical merry-go-round. And all I want to do is give people solutions that will reduce suffering for them if possible. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I know in your book, you talk about the new biology and I'm really interested in just that that idea because obviously a lot of a lot of things in science, even though science is constantly evolving, there's a lot of fixed ideas out there, and you really present a totally new way of looking at our biology. So, can you elaborate on that? It's such a great question because I think many people think science is almost like a destination. Like when they say, for example, the science on vaccines being safe and effective is settled, as if it's some kind of like you know, like tussle, like, you know, there was a fight and someone won, like, and that is true to the degree that the victor, you know, creates history, you know, they get to uh, make up what happened. And that's what's been going on is there's been like a real politicizing of science as an instrument, not only of an industry, but also, you know, if you will, the powers that be that are faced with at present, I don't know how many, 7 billion people on the planet, Medicine is being used as a tool to control ma the masses. And this was, you know, presaged by people like Foucault uh, quite some time ago, half a century ago, that, you know, it's called biopolitics. You're using medicine really to control people. Mm. And it can go even farther than that, honestly, when you talk about depopulation agendas. Um, so the new biology is really interesting, a term, because it simply describes what happened around 2000, um, 2000 when a lot of the research that we used to think was rock solid, you know, like genes control your destiny, got completely decimated. Or even the question of what is it uh, to be human? Well, technically, once they discovered the microbiome, we realized that we're actually more germ than we are eukaryotic cell. And that was, that was just mind-blowing. When people realized that we have trillions of viruses that are really essential for our health, the whole superstructure of germ theory and all the medical industrial complexes, pharmacopoeia suddenly was called into question. So a lot of what I've done in the book is really just outline the progression of medicine from really more of a political construct. You know, you look at the Flexner Report, you look at Rockefeller-based medicine where they're trying to convince you that petrochemical derivatives are essential for you to be healthy and life-saving versus the reality, which is natural medicine is the default operating system that we need for our bodies to be healthy. So a lot of what I talk about in the book is really just transitioning into um, incorporating the new research that's going to take maybe 40 years before it even enters into the standard of care, as well as research on the new biophysics, which people like Jack Cruz have been talking about quantum biology for a while. What I'm trying to do is give people insight into the fact that our bodies are these miraculous technologies that are infinitely more complex, infinitely more capable of self-healing than anyone ever told us before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, one way of breaking that down too, is that in, in medical science, we're more like just raw material. And um, in the new biology, we're kind of like light, we're basically light beings, right? So, um, you know, there's a difference between somebody who's dead and somebody who's alive, okay, even though they weigh exactly the same, and that is the vibration, the energy, right? And uh, you go into that in the book. Man, amen, man. That's, that's a big thing, what you said, because like when people start understanding that we emit photons, they're called biophotons. Yeah. No, they're ultra weak in the sense that you really shouldn't be able to see it with just your eye. And yet I believe that there is actual light that's emitted, especially from the eyes themselves. Mm. So interesting, you know, they have a high level of the enzyme telomerase, which we know about because it heals up the sort of shoestring like ends on the chromosomes that after, you know, many replications, they start to degrade and fray. And then you start cutting into sensical information in the genome well the light in the eyes is like a real thing because you look at an old person they might be a hundred and they still have these eyes which are basically gelatin i mean it, and i mean that not just in terms of protein the water that comprises 
the majority of the molecules in all the cells in our body, which is 99% by number, is actually water in a gel-like form. Yeah. That's amazing. We're basically protoplasm that is infinitely resilient, that basically has immortality at the core of it. And that's really the promise of the new biology, is that when you look at what life is on this planet, it's actually a byproduct. No matter what species you look at, it could be a plant, it could be an insect, it could be a human. All the cells come from the last universal common ancestor about 3.4 to 3.8 billion years ago. There was one cell, protocell, uh, from which all other life forms came from. The implication is that in our bodies right now, we have what are known as germline cells, which are the basis for the stem cells in our body that actually derive from a continuous, near infinite replication from that last universal ancestor. Now, there are many other ways to go about this because you can go and look at the origin of life and some proposed panspermia hypothesis that meteors deposited something like a fungal form that then became the, the, the cell that was the first original cell. So actually life can be considered potentially eternal and immortal. So even though it is conventional biology and it sounds evolutionary, it actually confirms what a lot of people you know, in the religious, like creationist uh, bent have been saying, which is that we are fundamentally immortal and uh, resilient in a way that, again, no one has ever told us about. Yeah, and in your book, just in the title, you use two of my favorite words, regenerate and resilience. And so I'd love for you to go more into detail about that. And then that also really reminds me of another one of my favorite words, autophagy, and how that plays a role in all of this. Oh, that's a great word. So yeah, I know you focus a lot on this topic, which is amazing. Well, resilience is a good word because in this day and age, obviously, we're being assaulted by an unprecedented number of toxic exposures. And, you know, we could just look at petrochemicals alone. There's probably about 10,000 novel unique chemicals that we're exposed to that were never tested adequately for safety before being released into the environment that we know are probably carcinogenic and at least, you know, genotoxic. But then you have non-native EMF, which is like a tidal wave. Uh, it's like a, the new DDT, if you will, but it's so toxic, you know, and it's non-thermal effects, meaning people focus a lot on toxicological risk assessment around radiation exposure as if it's just a, a matter of heating the tissue. In fact, post Hiroshima, the idea was, oh, we could tell what risks associated with radiation are by looking at the burn victims, basically, of Hiroshima, you know, ground zero. And they weren't looking at the subtler um, effects that radiation has. So non-native EMF, which is basically electromagnetic radiation that's man-made, coming from our computers, Wi-Fi, 5G, is such an assault on the fundamental electromagnetic uh, sort of substrate of the cell that I'm, I'm always amazed like every day that we're even standing given what I know about the topic now. I mean, on Greenman Info, I've indexed over a thousand studies on the adverse effects of this type of EMF on over 300 different conditions. So it's not like the science isn't there to say, this is a terrible experiment. We need to stop as soon as possible. Um, but so the resilience uh, meme, if you will, that's in my book is really about acknowledging and being grateful for the fact that we are relative to this genocidal vector, pretty um, uh, healthy, you know, ultimately we're still in, in one piece. Why is that? Well, part of it is because if you look at the electromagnetic um, signature of just a single mitochondrion, right? There's about 5,000 mitochondria in every neuron, for example, and trillions of them throughout our body. The electric field um, uh, potential of, of each mitochondrion is something like 30 million volts per meter, which is like a lightning bolt, literally, or the kind of emission that comes over the surface of the sun. And no one can seem to explain this through classical physics, right? And electromagnetic theory, but there are people like Nassim Harriman that have tried, which is basically that, you know, when you look at what they call zero point energy, uh, the universe has this fundamental quantum jiggle of energy that when you scale up the total number of these jiggles, you would assume that macroscopic 
phenomenon and humans like ourselves, right, that have access to this energy should really be able to power themselves off of it. And that is what I was able to uncover in the book is that there's a good amount of research indicating that species do access this energy. And some of the most amazing examples are like the mantis and the pistol shrimp, inches long, right? And they literally can break aquarium glass, they can split a diver's thumb in half, and they can produce temperatures that are similar to what's on the surface of the sun simply by striking their uh, claw in the water, creating what's called a water cavitation event. Water cavitation is almost like a micro supernova. It's, it's, it's really like a little star. And sometimes in these experiments, they call the star in the jar because it'll produce what they believe is up to a million kelvins or something insanely high in terms of temperature. That's happening in water. So part of the book is helping people understand the miracle of life and that when you look at cellular bioenergetics, it's not that we're just these like glucose burning, you know, um, machines, right? The convenient, you know, fat and fermentation backup energy system. We are literally quantum biological organisms that are transforming quantum energy and light into matter. And that's something that I think uh, is very liberating and speaks to, again, why we're doing so well, given the fact that we should probably be dead, given, you know, what we're exposed to. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing to think about just our bodies constantly adapting and working on our behalf, right? Constantly doing everything it can to give us the greatest possible survival advantage. And we touched on EMFs. You know, we're always exposed to EMFs. I mean, uh, in nature, there's EMFs, but our body is adapted and they're actually healing, right? Just being out on the earth. I always tell people going out with your bare feet on ideally, you know, non-sprayed grass, dirt or sand, right? Ideally. Um, it's almost like showering from your, your electromagnetic field, right? Kind of like grounding your body, kind of showering the 5G, uh, whatever else you're exposed to. And I think what you're talking about, the, the challenge there with something like 5G is this, just this constant bombardment, like all night while you're sleeping, just being bombarded with the radiation. Short amounts of stress for short periods of time, we call hormesis, and we get stronger and we adapt to it. But it's the constant exposure that then becomes a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you bring up some really good points. I mean, when it comes to, you know, grounding, I mean, like you said, it's like showering. It helps to offset the constant influx of, uh, you know, radiation that is, is basically causing oxidative stress. It's upsetting basic uh, cell structure and function. Just, uh, you know, just absorbing the limitless stream of negative ions from the ground is the way that we help balance our system. It says, Aging as time itself, and it's, I believe, an essential protocol that we need to be utilizing in order to stay healthy in this day and age. The other thing is that, um, you know, hormesis, I do agree that getting little bits of stress, I mean, are essential. Even, even you could say, you know, unique new forms of stresses, like uh, even, I guess you could say even a low EMF. I mean, I know some of the more conventional folks get into that. That little bit of radiation exposure is good for you. The point is, is that, you know, we live and we die on this planet. And, you know, part of, um, I think in our realm of health and wellness advocates and, and sort of orthorexic advocacy is like this fear of mortality. Like we're so afraid we don't eat the right thing or we don't get the exact right amount of vitamin C. Part of it is also accepting that, you know what, we're all in this together. We all, we're all going to die. Let's make the best of the situation. And that's part of it. Well, with 5G, though, I would add, um, it's basically such a assault on the body because of the fact that the millimeter wave lengths, which are you know between 10 gigahertz and up to 100, they haven't yet rolled these out to my knowledge. Okay, so 5G also means fifth generation. So they're building off previous you know, 2.45, 5 gigahertz standards, but they are scaling it up. That's their intention. And, and then the challenge is, is that the absorbance of the radiation in water is so high, the antioxidant that, you know, that's what we're comprised of. It's like an assault on all living things on the planet. And, and that's why the Defense Department spent so much time researching these higher, you know, millimeter wave um, 
wavelengths because they, they are used for crowd control. You could literally kill somebody and burn them with it with the right power density and the right amount of time. Uh, so this is not conspiracy theory. This is basically what the Defense Department worked on, and that is why the unleashing of this wavelength uh, upon humanity is a grave concern. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, right now while we're doing this interview, um, it is in late April and we've got COVID-19 going on and we were just talking about how everybody's wearing face masks and everything going on everywhere. And, um, you know, talking about viruses and our, our body's natural resiliency, because I think with every breath, we're breathing in thousands of viruses, different microbes. I mean, they're all around us. They're everywhere, right? So for us to be extraordinarily fearful of any one of those, uh, you know, I mean, it, it just doesn't really make sense. And, and it, you know, exposure actually builds our immune system, creates more strength, more resilience. I'd love for you to touch more on that. I love that you brought that up. It's absolutely true. The concept, right, that there's this one strain of coronavirus, which, by the way, Andrew Kaufman, PhD, has done such a great job of exposing the reality, which is they never isolated a singular pathogen in the manner that you would have to, uh, to be able to say it's the cause of you know, the so-called, you know, respiratory pneumonia and death associated with coronavirus. Meaning, if you were to obey classical germ theory requirements in Wuhan, it would have taken people who had multiple identical cases of this disease, isolated the singular pathogen, do electron micrograph verification, and then take a living particle, which by the way, they're obligate parasites, they don't actually have the ability they have no like ATP or way to move from cell to cell, right? And take that viral particle, infect animals, can't do it to humans, although that would be more science-based, and show the same symptoms. And then finally, step three, isolate the very same particle and show that it was the one that originally infected those humans. They didn't do any of those three steps. So this concept that there is this thing called COVID-19 that is just spread around the world and that we're seeing here in the States, which is, by the way, uh, the reason why they've inflated the numbers from the get-go, which is why the CDC, the WHO says explicitly, you don't have to do virus testing, you just have to suspect that they had it. Listen, someone can die with a COVID-19 diagnosis, right? They can have been tested for it. It doesn't mean that they were killed by this invisible particle. It's that it was part of why they died, for example. So the whole thing, the whole narrative is absolute garbage. Um, and that's really something that I think people need to understand when it comes to our virome, which is that every human, when they're healthy and asymptomatic, has literally thousands of different viruses within their body. Some of them include ones considered deadly, right? You have herpes family viruses, you have various uh, influenzas naturally found in the human blood. It is a complete myth that these things exist outside of the cell on their own and that they just exist to kill us. The reason why everyone believes it because it's a genius geopolitical strategy. It actually was birthed within the Third Reich itself. And when people go back in time and understand why germ theory became so popular, they'll see that it fulfilled historical agendas that are diametrically opposed to saving people's lives. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it really just strikes fear in people. And I, when I always, when I think about microbes and the microbial life, their job is to break down decaying matter, right? That's their job. And our job as humans is to not be decaying matter, right? Our job is to be <laughs> resilient, like you talked about there. You right? got to make a quote out of that. That's yeah. really Yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, that's exactly it, because between Bouchamp and, uh, you know, Pasteur, the, the age-old conflict was on the terrain versus germ theory and the idea that you know, somehow you could blame an entire life of, say, nutritional deficiency and compatibility, chemical exposure, EMF exposure, chronic trauma and stress on an invisible particle, and then give that particle credit for killing people. I mean, we, we saw this in Italy. Their highest authority when it comes to health declared that 99% of those who died in Italy, where they were giving the highest case fatality rates, right, were freaking out the world. They were already sick. They were elderly. The average age was, I believe, 76 years of age. The average life expectancy in Italy is 82. 50% had three chronic lethal diseases already, 
And they're saying that they died of COVID when they didn't even have to do a virus test or have anything more than suspicion. This is the most absurd psychological operation that's ever been performed. It was the most successful one. I consider it something like a, a World War III when it comes to the info war. I mean, they successfully halted most of the socioeconomic activity on the planet over what was essentially a hoax. That's fundamentally what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just for the listener, you could have a heart attack. Paramedics come and get you. They, they rush you to the hospital. <clears throat> They're trying to resuscitate you, keep you alive. Somewhere along the lines, by the way, hospitals are the number one place where people get infections. Um, you get some sort of infection or you just uh, basically, you get exposed to it. They do a swab on you. They find that you have it. You die from the heart attack, but yet it's still labeled as COVID-19. That's yeah, kind of exactly. where we're at. That's exactly what happens. And unfortunately, there's no, it's not, it's not ethical what they're doing. And, and yeah. so, you know, so but what you said is the most important. And that's what the basis of Regenerate is, is that we have a responsibility and opportunity to cultivate wellness and resiliency. So when it comes down to whether we're at risk of infection or COVID or not, it's immune status that determines susceptibility. So that was a great point. That's right. And it's really all about our adaptability. And uh, an interesting thing that I know you've talked about uh, on your website as well as in your book is our ability to derive energy from photosynthesis, which I found very, very fascinating. Um, you know, we know that plants are autotrophic, meaning that they can produce all their energy they need from, you know, water, sunlight, nutrients in the soil. They don't have to actually consume uh, food, right? And humans, we always thought were heterotropic, right? And we had to consume food. But, you know, science is actually showing now that we can produce energy through sunlight. And I'd love for you to go more, more detail with that. Yeah, I love your ability to uh, summarize these very important new discoveries. So in the Journal of Cell Science in 2014, a groundbreaking study was published that basically showed that, as you said, for the majority of time, basically, humans consider themselves completely dependent on eating other things for energy. Autotrophs, on the other hand, like plants, just sit there and take in the light, right? And that's how they're, they're that's their food. We're actually in between. We're photoheterotrophs now because that study proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that mammals, including pigs, which are the closest mammals that we know to humans in physiology, take in chlorophyll into their mitochondria through natural metabolism it's a metabolite of chlorophyll known as PBE, and are able to capture photonic energy with that chlorophyll metabolite, accelerating the production of ATP and making it more efficient. Because one of the rate limiting steps of ATP production is the reduction of coenzyme Q10 to, into ubiquinol, basically. And that's why ubiquinol has been a big thing, because it's in its reduced or antioxidant or electron rich form. And so, what essentially chlorophyll does is enable you to capture the light in your environment and enrich and accelerate and basically supercharge your you know, mitochondria. And actually in the studies, they found that if you expose yourself to light with chlorophyll, it has a longevity promoting effect. If you don't actually have chlorophyll and expose yourself to light, it actually can still cause photoaging as we sort of so the beauty of it is, it's like what grandma said, it's like we have to eat our greens. And the whole paleo community, I don't think has caught up to this yet, right? Because they're always kind of throwing the whole plant-based people in the bus and for a good reason in part. But the reality is they're starting to win this debate because if we're looking at these movements, we have to understand physiology. And that's based on understanding what our cells can get energy from. And now we know actually in addition, we can get energy directly from the ambient energy in our environment from the sun, which is infrared, through the charging up of the EZ zone or structured zones in water, which ultimately water isn't H2O, it's H3O2 in biological systems, which are hexagonal sheets basically of this crystal-like, gel-like water structure that has basically the ability to store energy and information. Then you have melanin, which is also like mammalian chlorophyll. It has the ability to separate the charge, not unlike photolysis, which then is able to release high energy electrons and create, again, what is essentially like a molecular battery in water. According to Arturo Herrera, this Mexican researcher that's done incredible work on melanin, melanin also may have an informational 
role because it, it's almost digital in the sense that it's like one and zero. It can form a new H2O and then it can disassociate the water molecule. So it does this constantly in reversibility. And he believes that this uh, property may actually explain the origin of life because before self-replicating molecules, melanin may actually have been sort of the, the seed or chrysalis for uh, what we know as life today. So a lot of very interesting information related to how our bodies aren't just, again, burning you know, food as fuel, and we have the ability actually to absorb energy through uh, you know, the, the sun. And then there's even the other side of it, which is the whole quantum vacuum and zero point energy, which our cells also have the ability to extract. Yeah, it's just really fascinating, this, this idea of light energy transfer uh, that's taking place. And melanin, for the listeners out there, that's actually what gives your, your skin pigment, right? So when you're exposed to sun, your body adapts, right? And uh, can, can, can get tanner in a sense, right? Gets darker uh, over time. And so, um, so can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a great question or point because see, why is it that we're encouraged to go into the sort of UVB range to produce vitamin D. Well, you know, it's on either side of solar moon, like two hours is the optimal time. You get the UVB radiation, which enables you to, you know, convert cholesterol into vitamin B. But one thing it does is induces new melanocyte formation, which, whereas UVA, which is, you know, arguably um, somewhat toxic at times, is oxidizing already existing melanin. So the thing about melanin is that we have it deeply in all of our tissues. In fact, one of the most interesting hypotheses that got me on this trail of trying to understand what melanin is, is that birds, for example, let's look at the albatross. This massive creature, I think it has like a 15 foot wingspan, can circumnavigate the entire globe without stopping. Wow. And Right? No one can understand the physics of that or the thermic uh, requirements, uh, caloric requirements, because it's not possible to do that through conventional metrics. But we, we can observe that it has a very unique organ called the PEC10, P-E-C-T-E-N, right behind the eye in the brain, which enables it to convert sunlight into metabolic energy. Um, that's another reason why the sunlight come in through, through its eyes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then that, that area, yeah. And this is the theory behind the substantia nigra as well, is that, you know, it's highly melanized. We know it produces dopamine, and yeah. dopamine is a byproduct of tyrosine, just like melanin. So they're part of the same biosynthetic pathway. So the concept is that the melanized region of the brain isn't there just to produce dopamine. It's there to, again, produce energy and, and actually um, molecular oxygen. So you get molecular hydrogen, you know, protons and molecular oxygen through melanin disassociating the water molecule deep in the brain. Over time, there are certain metals specifically that tend to bind to melanin because melanin is a detoxifier and chelator, which then causes, unfortunately, dysfunction of the melanocytes. So you get demelanization, which is associated with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And then you get um, prion, uh, uh, protein uh, confirmation misfolding. So instead of blaming the prion for the toxicant exposure, which is metals, etc., uh, we start to understand the root cause better, which is it's more of a metabolic disorder, not unlike with you know Warburg uh, effect in cancer, that we're looking at the wrong aspects, genes, when it's just, hey, we're feeding it sugar, we're acidic, we have low oxygen, etc. So, so when it comes to another example is the painted turtle, which is able to go and hibernate underwater for up to three, four months. How the heck does this thing do that if obeying any of the you know, conventional laws of biology or physics or chemistry? It's because it's using melanin to synthesize the free oxygen it needs as well as the energy it needs. So it's literally living off of light and it's because of melanin, according to at least Arturo Herrera, which who I think has got it figured out. These concepts in new biology are just so fascinating. And guys, you can get a lot more of that with Sayer's book, Regenerate. Um, chlorophyll is always fascinating me because it really has the same molecular structure as hemoglobin, except for the binding mineral in hemoglobin is iron, right? And that's, of course, what carries oxygen to all the cells of our body. And with chlorophyll, you've got magnesium. And magnesium is one of the biggest deficiencies 
that we see. And of course, we get it from green foods, one of our best, one of our best sources, not only chlorophyll, but of course the magnesium as well. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's a fascinating fact. But there was research done in the 70s to try to confirm the work of Louise Kevron, who was a scientist who tried to explain how it's possible for living systems to transform elements into one another, not unlike what the alchemists used to claim they could do with, say, lead and gold. But what he proposed, based on very solid empirical observation, which stretches back over 200 years in the annals of science and naturalism, is that elements do convert into one, into one another through low-energy nuclear transformation. What that basically means is that a chicken, you know, pecking at mica, for example, which doesn't contain calcium but has, I think it's high in silica, is able to transform it into calcium. So you see these animals like cows eating, you know, magnesium-rich grass all day long, excreting massive amounts of calcium in their milk, or chickens laying massive amounts of calcium in their eggs. How are they doing it? They're not eating the original element. They would need to if, you know, this wasn't true. So this army researcher, um, Samuel Goldfein, I believe is his name, it's in the book, did a, did a study to try to understand whether these theories or observations were true, and he found that magnesium chelate or magnesium ATP actually has a helical uh, structure that according to his studies obey all the characteristics of a cyclotron particle accelerator, which are able to accelerate you know, hydrogen ion or pro, pro, um, proton to near speeds of light, causing this event, which is, is basically the reversal of the um, uh, mass energy equivalence equation of Einstein, where you're getting uh, light turning into matter. So that's how he explained uh, why animals can seemingly manifest elements or transform them into one another. You look at an airplane, for example, growing on a copper wire, how the heck is that thing even existing? It's, it's, there's no sense to it unless one can account for this. So what he fundamentally explained was, by the way, in his experiments, it was an over-unity experiment. So the mitochondria are pr producing more energy than should be possible according to conventional laws of physics and chemistry. And that's because it was accessing, again, energy from the quantum vacuum and turning it into programmable matter. So basically, we are the most amazing technology ever discovered. And we're just starting to understand that. And uh, it's part of, you know, sort of the promise of the new biophysics, if you will. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just really, really fascinating to talk about these kinds of topics. And I know in the book, you also talk about various different fruits and different, uh, like you talk about pomegranate and how good it is for your heart. And you open it up and it almost looks like the chambers of the heart, right? And so how nature gave us these kind of clues. And that's a good one. Pomegranate. Yeah, I didn't even talk about one of the basic premises of the book, which is that after discovering something called exosomes, researchers started to understand that when you eat certain foods, it could be rice. These little nanoparticles that happen to be the size and shape of viruses and contain similar nucleic acids, like microRNA, are able to go into our body and alter the expression of fundamental gene processes. So the LDL receptor in our liver completely change when we consume rice. And that's an example of where over time, humans have outsourced the regulation of our own DNA to the things we eat in our environment. And that's because of what one might call co-evolution between the angiosperm plants or flowering plants and uh, complex animal life. So in pomegranate, you have the most amazing of all facts. This is the fruiting ovary of the pomegranate bush. It, you cut it in half, it looks literally like an ovary. It has bioidentical mammalian steroidal hormones like estrone, a form of estrogen, and testosterone. Mm. In the animal model of ovarectomy-induced osteoporosis and menopause, you take the ovaries out of, say, a rat. Within about a few weeks, it develops full-blown demineralization of its bone consistent with osteoporosis, menopausal symptoms like depression, midsection fat, premature aging, whatever. And then if you give one group pomegranate, it's as if you never took their ovaries out. They are looking just as alive and well as if they you know, had full functioning ovaries. 
this is an example of where plants needed animals to disperse their seeds. So what they did is they gave them the fruit, which enticed them and helped to encourage their longevity. And that's in the interest of the plant as it is for the animal, because as they become fruitful and multiply, they're able to help each other's reproductive systems. So fundamentally, fruits and berries are like a software upgrade or update for the operating system, the hard-coded operating system of the human genome. So in many ways, food is more like software than it is hardware. We focus on building blocks for the body. We think of sources of calorie for our furnaces, but it's actually information. And information is so vital that if you don't get the fruits and vegetable software, you'll probably end up with cancer or chronic disease. That's how important food is. Yeah, I love that concept of biological information. That's actually what we're putting in our body when we choose different foods. So what are, let's take like a list of maybe your top five or 10 foods that you feel like these foods really are going to confer to longevity, uh, reducing inflammation in the body, uh, better mental acuity, better memory, better mental function, energy. What kinds of foods should people be looking at consuming on a regular basis? Great question. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of pomegranate, turmeric, ginger, garlic, black seed, uh, CBD. Um, I love, um, you know, sort of basic fruits. You know, I love apples. In fact, in my book, I have a whole chapter. Yep. To that. You know, one of the things about raw plant food, which I advocate people take every single meal, some raw organic plant food, it contains what are known as Apical meristematic cells, which are fundamentally immortal, and I believe help to transduce energy and information from the quantum vacuum. And that's because these cells are literally immortal. We have plants on the planet that's still alive in Tans Tasmania. You have Lomatia plant that's um, 47,000 years old. Mm -hmm. It's been doing is cloning uh, itself, replicating the cells for that's a near infinite amount of time, and it will probably continue onward because there's a certain immortality that's found in plant tissue that I believe beyond the enzymes that are conferred and, and afforded, there is an energy and information in those plants that is conferred. And you call life energy, you know, you can call it um, prana or chi, but it's something that I think in the new biology, the era of self-healing and radical resilience, we have to take more of that into us and again, realize that that is literally information without which our bodies cannot be healthy. And that, you know, everyone knows this now, especially you, because we participate in Truth About Cancer, is that cancer isn't caused by a lack of chemotherapy or radiation, but it, it can be said to be caused by a lack of fruits and vegetables or berries. And I could even maybe make the argument spices, because our species has spent millions of years consuming this plant material. And as we pour with vitamin C, we no longer have the enzyme that can convert glucose into it because we were so dependent on vitamin C-rich fruits and vegetables. Most humans have scurvy still today. We need to eat vegetables and fruits now more than ever, and we need to get it from biodynamic sources because a lot of this stuff is just garbage. So let me think of a couple other things. Hydration is super important. I think that right, uh, straight water is naturally structured. Get it in glass if you can. To me, it's better than fine wine. I'm willing to pay more actually for it. You know, you get this artisan bottle right there. Great, great artisan waters from like Italy. It is unfortunately like elite level socioeconomic bracket that you have to be in to, to consume the very substrate for health in the body. So I do also advocate that people get an RO system or maybe do distillation and then restructure the water, which can be done simply. Himalayan sea salt, a little pinch of lemon juice, flower remedies, intention, sunlight. You have created your own elixir for health locally. Yeah, yeah, all good stuff. And a lot of the herbs that you talked about are bitter herbs. And bitter is almost like a lost flavor. I always tell people bitter is good for your liver. We know that bitter helps open up, dilate the bile ducts. Most people have very restricted bile ducts. Not, they don't have good bile flow, helps activate stomach acid, digestive enzyme production, really helps prep you for optimal digestion, which is so important. And what I love about this conversation is that 
lot of times when I'm on this podcast, we're talking about more of how different things affect different systems. And you're talking about more the deeper level behind that, right? The exosomes, right? And, and going into how these sorts, uh, you know, how this is impacting our DNA and RNA and our genetic expression, which is just so powerful. But I can tell you're a fan of the bitters. Yeah, yeah, I've always loved bitters. And the reason is, is it's sort of poetic in a way because, you know, in the West, we're so fixated on sweet and salty. And, you know, other systems, you need sweet, you need salty, you need bitter, you need sour, you need pungent. And bitter is such a great way to balance out that excessive sweetness. And many people think about this, like, when you're eating, like, crackers or, you know, something like bread, you don't think it's sweet. But if you take puffed rice, for example, Within seconds, it is like almost pure glucose in your, in your blood. And, and so that's the thing is we need bitter to help balance that out. Uh, there's chemistry behind it, but a lot of it is also based on intuition and the way we were built. So bitter can be very essential for that. And, and coffee is another reason why we drink coffee is because that's one of the few places the Westerners do get bitter on a regular basis. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Coffee can actually be be great for helping flush out your bile ducts, so it can be really beneficial there. Definitely. Now, I know you also talk about chicken soup, right? And what are your thoughts on, on chicken soup? Yeah, I love chicken soup. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, one of the things about it is, you know, bone broth came into yeah. great prominence in part because the constituents that we need to be healthy include often the whole you know, animals, we're going to go with animals, right? We do a lot of muscle meat, but you don't get a lot of the lysine and proline that you'll find in the collagen part of the animal. And methionine, the sulfur-containing protein, which is an organ meat. So, you know, ultimately it's like anything else with nutrition and healing. We need to get the whole spectrum of, of something in order to get the full benefit because that's basically how we've, you know, eaten it since the beginning of time. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to basic research, even some of the research on chicken extract versus things like Tamiflu is just so compelling. You have like a chemical on the left that literally causes people to walk off of like, you know, tall roofs and kill themselves. You know, that Tamiflu is a serious threat to, to, to one's health psychically and physically. And then you have this incredible nourishing bowl of goodness that your grandma or mom's preparing. And I think half the magic of it is just the act of self-care or service to someone that you care about when you make them soup. So I think part of it is really more of a spiritual reason why it's actually healthy. Yeah, for sure. A lot, a lot of power there. And, and our thoughts and our intentions, like you were talking about with the water. I mean, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Dr. Amoto, right? Just by looking at water and concentrating on certain thoughts, he was able to change the structure of, of water and actually was able to see that under electron microscope and document it. Right, so powerful. So when we're creating food like chicken soup, and like you talked about, that's I mean, that's in my house growing up. My mom's a naturopath, so when we got ill, it was chicken soup with loads of garlic, right, <laughs> and lots of love, you know. So you got to put in that vitamin L, right? Get that oh, love in there. Well, no wonder that explains your origin story. I think that's that's great karma that you uh, your mom's a naturopath. Really cool. Yeah, it's an interesting story. My mom was a, a nurse and she saw kids getting vaccine injured and she actually told me that I was I was fully vaccinated. Of course, this is 1981, so it was different back then, but she saw me not respond well to that. And she realized there's something to this. And so she started studying massage therapy, herbs. We, she had a garden growing up, you know, as we were growing up. And then she started studying as a naturopath while I was, you know, a teenager. Wow. And uh, just implementing a lot of these types of things. And so, yeah, absolutely. It definitely impacted me and, and the way that I look at life for sure. Um, and let's talk a little bit about your daily schedule, what you're doing on a regular basis, um, like from the moment you get up to before you go to bed. Like what are, what are the, the activities that you're taking part in to help improve your health? Well, it's interesting. So I wake up. The first thing I do is just a meditation. You know, I put a timer on 15 minutes and uh, – Honestly, it's just I go through so many work-related things and like things that are like, you know, I would be just to clear it out. I could probably use an hour and 15 minutes of meditation every morning. But my intention I can relate with that, right? <laughs> when you're a driven person, it's so important, right? Just right now with so much going on, there's so much that I feel like I want to be aware of to get to, you know. But that helps because it's a way of committing to myself. I even do things like I deeply love, honor, and um you know, um, you know, just, just, just respect myself. It's like a way of coming into being and, and, and really just starting your day with a positive 
affirmation, you know, that's what we, we say used to do. There's a lot to that because we send messages to ourselves all the time. We're not good enough or, you know, there's a lot of negativity that we interact with that, you know, we can clear. Um, and then I usually try to prioritize after a cup of coffee because I actually use coffee as a way to just start my day. It's almost like intermittent fasting, you know, and for me, it seems to work. I mean, one could argue it's not so therapeutic. I've tried not doing it. And I, I went back because I really felt like yeah. I like it. Well, I'll touch on that real quick. So black coffee actually can help enhance autophagy and help you get better benefits from fasting. However, some people do have a sensitivity to it, right? And I always tell people, if you notice that you have, like drinking coffee, you should feel amazing afterwards. If you don't, if you have more cravings, you feel more irritable, then it's not, you're not responding well to it. But I would say for probably three quarters of the population, you're going to feel good drinking, drinking a cup of black coffee, get your day going. Yeah, for me, it gets me started. And, and, and after that, I usually do some form of intense exercise or prolonged exercise. And it's perfect for a pre-exercise too. Yes. Yeah, I feel that. And I mean, I was influenced by Paul Schillig, uh, founder of New Chapter, in his work, you know, because he did a lot of debunking of coffee as just being some kind of bad habit. The antioxidant activity of, of coffee, you know, uh, antioxidant components is really powerful. And there's other aspects to it that I think, um, you know, could be looked at as a, you know, a, a better recreational drug, if you will, than things like alcohol, tobacco, honestly because it does have something called capishol, which is a fat-soluble component that's found in decaf as well, that's about five times as potent as morphine, according to research I've seen. So there's something about the self-medication that, yeah, I mean, from the beginning, from breast milk, it has opioids in it. It's not like this isn't a human thing that we do, but you know, we, we deal with a lot of trauma. So let's just be honest. I mean, some of these things are being used to self-medicate, and. I, I like the way I feel with it. It helps with inflammation, and for now, it's working. But uh, I use it as leverage to get into my workouts. And then, you know, I might not have my first meal at 12 o'clock. You know, for me, it's, you know, I, I don't really live, you know, live to eat. You know, it's like eat to live. So you're, so you're doing time-restricted feeding there, which definitely helps activate autophagy. Again, one of my favorite topics goes hand-in-hand with the idea of regenerate, right? So you're, you're, you're really allowing your body to naturally um, you're getting more in touch with your natural instinct to eat, right? Your natural hunger, not just eating due to, based on like a, a set time frame, like most of society. Yeah. I mean, I'm a typo too. I don't know how much of that plays into it, but the autophagy thing makes sense to me. Um, I do feel, you know, the work, uh, done by Arnold Eret many years ago on fasting and, you know, theoretically you inverse, uh, consume through autophagy, the tissue that's most damaged, maybe even pre-cancers, right? And leave intact the healthy. And that's one of your body's best mechanisms for maintaining health. And knowing what I know now about how the body can get energy from sources outside of food, it makes it less compelling. And I've looked at the breatharianism and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence that if your intention and mind is shifted in a specific way, you can access what you need in the way of the air plant. I'm not advocating people do that. But I think a lot of what we do with food is for pleasure and it's for biomass production. Like I could get myself jacked and big and muscular if I want, eating a certain way, exercising a certain way. But after a while, your intentions shift and your priorities shift. So I feel like, you know, when people realize that when you do like say an apple fast, just eating apples a day or two, oh my God, the amount of like abundance of your energy and time and type of nourishment you get. And yeah, you work through feelings that you suppress through eating, emotional eating. Once you get through that, you start to have a different relationship to food. You know, it's both a, there's a cosmic source of energy and a cosmic, you know, like it could just be spending good time with friends or meditating, being in nature, exercising. That's nourishment. And yeah, eating an extra Burger is, is it nourishment, you know, it, it's, it's not, we don't really need as much as we think, but I love food and I eat a good amount of it. And I'm not telling anyone they shouldn't. It's just that let's, let's look at it for what it is. We don't need it as much as we think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm totally with you on that, Sarah. I feel my best when I'm fasting. Um, I have the best energy, best mental performance. I do my best work when I'm fasting, but I love to eat as well, right? So I just eat less often. That's really the concept there. It's not really eating less, it's just eating less often. And uh, so when you do eat, 
right? You eat till you're fully satiated, right? Um, you know, as much as you, you need for that. And that, yeah, that was interesting in the book about the apple fast, which is a form of a partial fast, almost kind of like uh, the, the research at Walter Longo has done. Because really, I mean, if you're eating apples, you're probably going to get maybe 800,000 calories. So, you know, partial fast is technically about 40% of your normal calorie load. And Walter Longo has shown that, you know, you do that for carried out for five days and you're activating rampant amounts of autophagy, stimulating stem cell, uh, embryonic stem cell development, regenerating your gut lining. So real powerful stuff. And then apples just in general, the apple skin is really good for the microbiome. So it helps preferentially favor things like acromanzia, which is called the, you know, the keystone bacteria in the gut. Right. And so that's excellent, actually. Um, yeah, one thing too is that post Chernobyl, they saved tens of thousands of children's lives by giving them apple pectin. Mm, it's yeah. Right, a unique yeah. ability to yep. radioisotopes out of the body, not to mention other bile, you know, um, uh, solids. So I think, uh, I mean, we can go into apples uh, uh, in depth, but they are one of nature's perfect foods, and I don't think it's an accident that they're, you know, in the sort of biblical tradition, Garden of Eden. Although I would you know, dispute that eating the apple was really bad for them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, in that particular case, however, in general, eating apples can be really good. Great form of structured water in there. Just a lot of really good stuff with it. So say our last question, what, um, obviously you've written this amazing book. What, what are you working on now? What are you most excited about now? Well, you know, what's interesting is that because of this COVID situation, I've been thrown directly back into the kind of activism, if you will, that for many years was my primary focus. I was basically ready after the book was done to experience my own form of retirement, which was I was just going to sit pretty here in Florida, maybe start a garden in my backyard and just start to become more poetic and mystical about my life. You know, and I have children and I, you know, I care very much about spending quality time and being offline. And what this did was basically activate, once again, the part of me that just cannot seem to rest because there's so much to be done is a great opportunity right now. So many people are waking up. So one of my primary focuses is a 501c4 that I co-founded called Stand for Health Freedom. And it's a organization that if you're pro-vax or anti-vax, it's no problem. All we are for is your choice and right to make your own decisions when it comes to your bodily sovereignty and integrity. It's the most American of all principles. The Constitution protects us in these times against the type of draconian dictatorship-like um, preemption of your rights that's happening with COVID and what has been happening with the whole vaccine exemption issue. So what I've been focusing on is making people aware that they have the power and right to communicate directly with their lawmakers. We have an entire software system set up that makes it you know, a couple of clicks and you've done a good job to connect with those people that are making these laws and enforcing them. So a lot of it is based on that. And then, you know, on top of that, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at creating an entire community based on Regenerate called the Regenerate Project. We had a big masterclass. Thank you for helping promote it. Yeah, there were yeah. 200,000 people be part of it. They loved it. And what people want is, honestly, this discussion with you has been one of my favorites, you know, because it's empowering information. It's, it's tangible. And we get to talk about the other fun things and real things that are affecting people. So, you know, definitely when we launch it, I'd love to invite you to be part of it. I'd love to interview you. We can kind of maybe get into like a podcast format because people love it. You know, they want this kind of content more than ever. Absolutely. Let's definitely do it. I mean, just your message is so empowering. Just the idea. I mean, just read that title, guys. Regenerate, unlocking your body's radical resilience through the new biology. If that doesn't get you excited, I really don't know what does, especially in today's day and age. It's really all about our body's ability to heal, that the, the power to heal is within us. We just need to remove the interference. And uh, I just want to acknowledge you, Sarah, for being a voice of truth and so eloquently communicating these principles of the new biology, the new physics. Um, and really presenting that to the world in, in, a, in a great way, in a very poetic way, like you were talking about. Um, you really are a poet. And uh, even though you're, you know, most people would think of you and they think researcher, he's a researcher, but really you're more than a researcher. You really are a poet because you take the research and then you put it in poetic terms that really creates beauty out of it. And uh, that's, that's one of the things I appreciate the most about you. And then uh, just your passion, your boldness, your bold stance, 
and um, you know what you stand for on a daily basis. So thanks for everything that you do, Sarah. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast as well. I want to thank you as well. I love your work. I love what you're doing. And it's just so powerful to have people like yourself and you know, your audience waking up together. I know we can create a world where it's normal to use vitamin C and good to heal ourselves. And I think, you know, together we're going to make that happen. Absolutely. That's right. And you, the listener, you're a part of that too. By listening to this, by sharing this information, go out and get Sayer's book, share that with the people that you know about, that you, that you care about. Um, let's spread this truth together. Because remember, you're more valuable than you think you are. We'll see you in a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.